I echo that back to you a few thousand times. Thank you so much for praying for us. Um, if you're new here or maybe haven't been here in a few weeks, my wife and I had COVID over the last three weeks. And uh, I'll tell you what, if, if the measure of um, the severity of COVID is by how many antibodies you're left with, I must have a lot of antibodies left in me now. That's good. And, and Lori as well, greetings from her to you. She's about 85, 90%, just a hard cough going on and, and stamina. Um, stamina is a big deal and focus uh, if you haven't had COVID, one of the side effects of it. And um, no kidding, two weeks ago, I was here because the quarantine thing was over for me and I could. And so I thought I would teach that weekend and I came in just to go through my notes um, on the platform here. So I, I came in with the mindset that if I can do 40 minutes, that would represent one time of teaching on, on a long side and I would try and focus. And I got like 17 minutes, I totally lost my place and I couldn't string thoughts together. And focus is a big deal of uh, being able to stay concentrated. And you guys are worth the best effort I can give for focus and, and God's worth that. So um, Kyle was scheduled this last week and I thought, man, we'd better just go with that and have him go forward. So hopefully my focus is back. You get to be the judge of that this morning. You'll find out. I'm very excited about what we're going to be looking at with you together. Um, I'm going to ask you if you have a Bible to go to Matthew chapter 2. Maybe you have a hard copy or you have one in the seat in front of you or, or you have it on your phone electronically. Um, go to Matthew chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 1. And you might be thinking, why are we not doing E2E this morning? If you're, if you're new here, E2E is eternity to eternity. And it's a series that we're working through um, from cre starting in Genesis from creation. But this would, would have been a standalone. I would have only been able to do one weekend and then we would have jumped into Christmas next weekend. I thought, that's not fair. I can't just do one and then stop it again. So we're saving that for right after Christmas for the new year. We'll jump back into E2E again. But these next three, four times together are gonna be focused on Christmas. So I'm pretty excited. That's why I'm pointing you to Daniel chapter two and, and uh, Daniel one and Matthew two. Before we get into any of that, though, I would just really, really love to pray with you and just thank God and ask him to focus us. Would you join me in doing that? Let's do that together. Father, as I said earlier, you are worthy of all our focus and, and the best we can possibly bring to the table. So we ask that you would allow us to have uh, open minds this morning as we look at things that were written thousands of years ago. In, the, in these ancient structures of language, God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work right now, stringing together all these thoughts so that it makes sense to us. And we're not left here with greater mystery, perhaps, as much as we're left with greater resolve. There's still so many things about you that are mysterious, but we pray that this time right now that you would expand our minds so that we would understand you better. Mostly, God, what we really want to understand is, is not just you better, but your actions and sending Jesus for us and how we relate to that and who we are to you and why you went to such great length. So, God, I ask that you would use this time. We turn it over to you and just praise you for what you've given us. Thank you for every single person who's part of this virtually and, and in the auditorium right now. Use our time together as an expansion of your kingdom that we would use these things to speak into the lives of other people who are precious to you as well. God, I ask for that in Jesus' majestic name and all God's people said, amen. A really familiar verse to you, if you've grown up in church or maybe you've been in church for a few years. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. You know that? John 3.16. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. John 3.17. That verse tells me that you were precious to God before you ever walked in the doors this morning. Before any of these materials that you're about to look at. This is packed with a lot of information. And there's a great deal of detail. And if you're going to be looking at your watch, you might as well not bother. Just set it aside this morning. All right? Um, I'm not talking crazy stuff, but, you know, it's going to be like 1220 before you're out of here, 1230. Because there's a lot in there. And we've got communion to do. But aside from all that detail, you're precious to God before you ever arrived here today. That's why God sent his son. And so as we study these things, it amplifies how precious we are to him and his desire to draw us in to the degree that it would cause us to actually worship him. Now, if we're going to be really honest and admit something that's very difficult for us, it is a difficult thing to fully worship what we don't know. We worship well what we know well. Let me give you an example. Some of you this weekend are are going to worship at the altar of the TV when the gods of football come on the screen. We do that, right? And it's not a thing that's hard to do. We, We get a team that's precious to us, and we study them, and we learn the statistics about the team, and we study the players, and, and then we celebrate when our team scores, and we worship when our team wins, and we're high-fiving and praising and screaming in ways that we would never do in any other public setting, because we're enthusiastic about what just happened. Here's another example for you. Maybe, maybe football doesn't resonate with you. Some of us will worship at the altar of Amazon this week, all right, or in the stores, because we will dedicate a lot of energy to finding that one thing. And when we find that one thing and we think it's going to work perfect, especially in a world where there's a supply chain issue going on, we get pretty excited and we might even call our friends and have them celebrate with us, I found it. And people get pretty enthusiastic over things that they're very dedicated to. We research things with great diligence and we dedicate ourselves to them and then then we rejoice and celebrate when it goes our way. Worshiping what you know well and give energy to is not hard. It just requires dedication, dedication of effort. Worshiping what you do not know is hard. It requires a dedication and you have to want to know the truth. Jesus spoke to this very issue. Look at me on the screen at this. This is from John 4, 23. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And they got knowledge about what they're worshiping. In spirit and truth, for such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Not just one, it's both. For many people, worshiping God is a struggle. 
because of a lack of understanding, a lack of understanding of what they're being asked to worship. And that's not an insult. It's just, it's an observation. Praise and worship requires conviction. And conviction comes from commitment. And commitment comes from knowledge. Thus, Jesus' statement, those are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Those who worship in spirit and in truth, they have that knowledge. So when you open up your Bible, you you find individuals who are fully worshiping because they have an understanding of what's in front of them is truth. Bear with me, and this will be the most complicated thought this morning. The rest of it's going to go pretty easy from here because it's all narrative, it's story. In, In other words, individuals will see evidence. And they see the evidence in front of them, and the evidence drives their senses, and their senses propel them to want to know more. And they're driven to discover the truth behind the visible evidence. I'm going to use the Magi to demonstrate what I'm talking about this morning. The Magi saw the star. They weren't worshiping the star. They wanted to worship the truth behind the star. They saw the evidence but they wanted to know what's going on behind the evidence. They were, they were driven to do that. And let's amplify that by looking at the Magi through the Old Testament and New Testament prophecies. Who are these guys? Who are these wise men? These are individuals, the Bible says, who excel in knowledge. The ancients called them the Hakem. You see this word on the screen? It's in your notes also this morning. Very specific definition that goes with the Hakem. And they are a very ancient people. They're not just exceeding in wisdom. The definition for them is that they're, they're skillful, they're intelligent, they're artful. Now, they're consistently referred to throughout the Bible. As a matter of fact, they all go back to the time of Genesis. That might surprise you, but they're around at the time of the Exodus when people are leaving Egypt. I'll show you a verse, and here's the setting for the verse. Pharaoh of Egypt is having a really bad day because he's had a really bad night. He's had some bad dreams. And he wakes up the morning of one of the dreams, and he's very frustrated. And we find in Genesis 41.8, he wakes up and calls some people forward. Now his spirit in the morning, his spirit was troubled, so he sent and called for the magicians of Egypt and all its hakem, all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. What did it take to be the Hakem? What did it take to be the Magi? Do you have to have an IQ of greater than 132? Do you have to be a member of Mensa? There's no Mensa at that time. There's no intelligent, quotious rating. But there's very specific requirements to be a member of the Magi that the Scriptures actually speak to. And and extra-biblical sources speak to. There were standards, there were characteristics. Look with me at Esther chapter 1. This is during the time of the Medo-Persian Empire. Then the king said to the wise, the hakem, wise men, who understood the times, so they're dialed into culture, they're very aware of the world, for it was the custom of the king, so to speak, before all who knew So they're lawyers, law and justice. They know court systems and were close to him, meaning they're in the presence of the king. The seven princes of Mersia and Media, and that's not the news media. That's not what that's referring to. It's the media empire, the Medes and the Persians. 
who had access to the king's presence and sat in the first place in the kingdom. So these are individuals who are elevated really, really high. And as you study history and you study the Bible, you find they are experts in astronomy, they're experts in science, they're experts in math, in medicine, in law, and in court protocol, and in politics. These are sharp individuals. Now, one of the great difficulties of individuals, I think it's common among the human race, but especially among individuals who are really intelligent, is that truth can get in the way. In other words, somebody can be so laser-focused on one particular area, they completely miss other things going on around them. And the Hakem are no exception. They're, some of them can be very, very focused and become blind. Many intelligent people, you know, people become like that. So a common human struggle is truth can be staring you in the face and you still can't see it because of a predisposition against the information. I expect you know people like that. Maybe it's you. I don't know. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Think of the smartest person you ever learned of in grade school. Was it Aristotle? Galileo? Isaac Newton, Johannes Kepler, Nikolai Tesla, Mozart, Stephen Hawking, Albert Einstein. Who's the most brilliant you've ever heard of? Well, for many people, for centuries and even millennia, most regarded Aristotle as the wisest, smartest individual who ever lived. And so anytime he said something, individuals really dialed into what Aristotle had to say. Everything he said was taken as gospel truth. And when he declared something, they took it at its face value and, and believed it. And so when Aristotle said that when a heavier object is dropped from a great height and a lighter object is dropped from a great height at the same time, the heavier object would fall to the earth first. And everybody took it at face value because it's Aristotle saying it, and he couldn't possibly be wrong. Everyone agreed he was right because it's Aristotle, and he's the greatest thinker of all time. He could not be wrong. Yet, anyone could have taken two objects and taken them up to a great height and dropped them off at the same time and watched to see, do they drop at the same speed? Do they fall at the same time? And do they hit the earth at the same time? But no one did. For 2,000 years, until 1589, when another brilliant guy by the name of Galileo called a bunch of really brilliant professors together in Italy, and they went to the Tower of Pisa. And he invited them to stand at the base of the tower, and he went to the very top of the tower. And he pushed off a 10-pound weight, and he pushed off a 1-pound weight, and he said, watch this. And they watched, and both the 10-pound and the 1-pound weight fell at the exact same rate of speed, and they both hit the ground at the same time. Yet because the dedication to what Aristotle had to say was so resilient in individuals' mind, and the predisposition, predisposition to believe Aristotle was so strong, the professors denied their eyesight, and they continued to say that Aristotle was right. When it comes to the Christmas story, there's a 10-pound weight the evidence is there for anyone who's willing to look at the truth. 
And the Bible speaks of individuals, especially individuals who are in the Bible, but people outside the Bible as well, who are willing to look for truth and investigate and discover as being the wisest of the wise. I'm among wise people this morning. You've investigated Jesus and you've discovered him and you've found him to be truth. And so the Bible considers you to be wise. Well, among the wisest of the wise that the Bible lists are three individuals that really come to the surface. One would be Moses, another would be Solomon, and a third would be Daniel. Let me show you what the Bible says about these three individuals. 1 Kings 4.30, Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. And that's talking about the entire region of the Middle East and Africa. Or this one, Acts 7.22, Moses was educated in all the learning of of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in word and deeds. Or this one that I want to focus on. Daniel, in verse 19, chapter 1, the king talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel. Verse 20, as for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, meaning Daniel and his four friends that were with, three friends that were with him, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. Don't get hung up on the words magicians and conjurers. I'll expand on that in just a minute. Because of a dedication to know truth, Daniel ranks among the hakem. He's at the very top of the top, 10 times brighter than the hakem. Now hold all of that information and transfer it over to the very familiar story in Matthew chapter 2, the Christmas story. Look with me at Matthew 2 verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Know this about Matthew, if you didn't know this about the authors of the Bible. Matthew is a super detailed writer. He was a tax collector. Jesus called him to follow him. So Matthew's this guy who works with mathematics and numbers. He's so precise that he begins writing down specifics. Where other authors like John, they generalize Matthew, he goes for the detail, for the source information, and he's the one that tells us it was Herod who was ruling at this time. Not just any Herod, Herod the Great. And he was named by the Roman Senate in 40 BC to be king over the land of Israel, to be king of the Jews. Now, know this about Herod the Great. He craved power. So he inflicted really incredibly heavy taxes on the people. And the people resented him not only for that, but the fact that they considered him unworthy of the throne because he's an Edomite, which means he's a descendant of Esau, which means he's not a descendant of Jacob. And so they didn't want to have a guy who's a half-Jew on the throne, and Herod knew that they thought that way about him. By 37 BC, he had crushed all of those who opposed him. Historians tell us that he was incredibly wealthy, and this is a guy who's politically gifted. He's intensely loyal, especially to Rome, and he was cunning enough politically to survive multiple Caesars, so he outlived a lot of the emperors, and and this is a guy who wanted to remain in the good graces of Rome, so he put these famine relief programs in place where he would assist people who were starving, and that made Rome look good. 
But that's what he's not most known for. What he's most known for are his building programs. This guy is like an architect, second to none. And his buildings are fabulous. But as brilliant as he was, and as crafty as he was, Herod has this really dark side to him. And they surface in the events of Matthew chapter 2. By this point, Herod's got 10 wives. He's got a concubine also. He's extremely consumed with paranoia. And he thinks everybody's out to get him. And so he surrounds himself with people that he believes if he pulls them into his good graces, they won't conspire against him. But his paranoia turns cruel into fits of rage. By the time he ages, he begins killing his really close associates. He actually executed 46 members of the Sanhedrin. That's the Supreme Court. And and then he murdered his brother-in-law by having him drowned in a swimming pool. And then his mother-in-law. And then his two sons. No wonder Caesar said what he said about Herod. Look with me at this. In 4 BC, Augustus Caesar said, it is better to be Herod's dog than one of his children. Not much of a reputation, right? So this guy actually arranged for hundreds of his cabinet members to be executed on the day that he died so that there would be mourning and weeping in Israel because he knew people wouldn't likely mourn for him. So he tried to orchestrate it so people would be weeping at least on the day that he died. This is who the wise men have to deal with when they arrive in Jerusalem. And verse 1 of Matthew chapter 2 says, these magi, these magion, they're coming from the east. Who are they? Well, we get the direction from Scripture, we're told from the east, and it means literally in the ancient language, from the rising of the sun. That's where they're coming from. And they're coming towards Jerusalem, towards Bethlehem. But tradition and ancient languages, when they're woven together, tell us these guys are from Persia, what we think of today as Iran. So magi, when you open up your Bible, it's this Greek word magos. You can see this in your notes and on the screen, and it means of foreign origin. This is actually a foreign people is what it's referring to. And in the Hebrew language, it records them as rab mag, not magos, but rab mag is a magion. So you see this next word, rab mag, it means a chief magion. These are these brilliant individuals, Babylonian officials. Is there anything in archaeology that tells us that these guys were from Persia, what we think of as Iran? More importantly, what we think of as Babylon. Marco Polo actually recorded in his diary in 1200 AD, approximately around there, 1270 AD, that when he was making his journeys, he kept a really good diary. And when he went through this region, traveling towards the far east, he moved through Iran. And he discovered something absolutely fascinating in 1270 A.D. He said he discovered the graves of three really great Magian who had been buried in ancient times in Saba, Tehran. Let me show you this quote. This comes right from his diary. In Persia, in the city called Sava, from which the three Magi set out when they came to worship Jesus Christ, here too they lie buried side by side. The one is just beside the other in three sepulchers of great size and beauty. Above each sepulcher is a square building with a domed roof of very fine workmanship. The bodies are still entire with hair and beard remaining. One was named Balthazar, the second Gaspar, and the third Melchor. 
Now, if you go on to read the diary, the inhabitants of the region said that when they set out on their journey, and these, mind you, these are people who don't know the Bible, they said that when these Magians set out to go worship this newborn child, that they took three gifts with them. They took along specifically gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, that's not the only pieces of archaeology. Let me show you one more. Around 300 A.D., there's an emperor ruling over Rome. His name is Constantine. His mother is Helena, and Queen Helena went to Bethlehem, and she, she specifically found the area where she believed that Jesus was born. Maybe some of you have been to the Middle East and seen the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. That was because Queen Helena approximately found from people in 300 A.D. where they believed that Jesus was born, and so she had a church constructed right on the site called the Church of the Nativity, and, and in the floor of the church was this amazing mosaic that you can see today in the museums in Italy, and this mosaic that's in the floor of the Church of the Nativity in 360 or so AD, it represents not Jewish people, but these guys carrying gifts who are wearing these conical pointed hats, carrying three gifts, and clearly in Persian clothing, and we know that because even in 600 A.D., when the Persian Empire launched an assault against Israel, and they, they tore through Israel, and they were tearing down buildings left and right, they came to the church of the Nativity, and when the soldiers went inside and they saw this mosaic in the floor of the church, they decided to leave that building alone because it was honoring Persian people. And so the Italians, they went back and they scooped it up and they took it, and you can find it in the museums in Italy today. Well, there's two sources of archaeology. Here's what we know from world history. In, in world history, it, we recognize four ancient major world empires. The first would be the Babylonian Empire. And, and we recognize that, that they settled in the Fertile Crescent and in between the rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. And then there comes the Medo-Persian Empire, and that's a combination, a conglomerate of the Persians and the Medes. And, and then there's the Grecian Empire. We think of Alexander the Great. And, and then, not least, is the Roman Empire. And so we find these Magian, these Hakem, from the Babylonian Empire through the Medo-Persian Empire, all the way through the Grecian Empire and into the time of the first century during the Roman Empire, they continue to exist. My question is this, how did they know? How could the Magi of Matthew chapter 2 know to arrive in Israel? They're from Iran. Really interestingly, during the time of the Babylonian Empire, the Hakem, the Magi, were heavily influenced by a Jewish man. Let me take you back and show you Daniel 1 again. We just read this a moment ago. Daniel chapter 1 verse 20. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in his realm. Now, mind you, in Babylon at this time, the Hakem have ascended to this really high place of counsel to the king because of their wisdom and their knowledge of mathematics and science and law. And according to the Bible, they came into direct contact with a Jew who's been elevated in the Babylonian Empire. Look with me at chapter 2 of Daniel, Daniel verse 48, chapter 2. 
Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the hakem of Babylon. This is really fascinating. I told you this is packed with detail. Hear me out on this. Quite literally, Daniel is the chief prince over the entire group of the hakem. And we know Daniel as this really dedicated man of God. Matter of fact, I bet when you think of Daniel, you think of this really old guy with this long flowing white beard. I'm here to tell you that he's, he's the oldest teenager you've ever seen. He's like 17 when this is occurring. He was taken captive when he was 14, hauled captive into Babylon. He's young. He's, he's no more than 20. And he's been put in this elevated place of responsibility. And here he's in this tremendously unique position of being able to bestow on all these other hakem his knowledge about God's word. See, there's only one way the Magi of Matthew chapter 2 could have known. 600 years earlier, a guy by the name of Daniel passed on his knowledge specifically of the prophecies regarding the Messiah. Now hear me on this. Here's your part of your application for today. This should really give you a fresh perspective on hard times that come into your life. And you go back and study the history of what happened to Daniel when he was taken captive and dragged across from Israel to Babylon. There's no way in the world Daniel wanted to be, as a teenager, a captive in a foreign land, let alone what they did to his body. But God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. Hope you agree with that. Daniel is in this remarkable place because God allowed him to be taken captive to share the prophecies of God's word with people who would not have known it in any other way. Now, every ancient student of God's word knew and looked forward to the fulfillment of the prophecies regarding the one who would eventually come. And Daniel is no exception whatsoever. He understood the prophecies, but more importantly, he believed the God of the prophecies. And there's an important distinction, church. It's one thing to believe the prophecies. It's another thing to believe the God of the prophecies. Let me show you a couple of those prophecies. Numbers 24, 17. Moses wrote this. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel. Now, Moses lived long before Daniel. And he's writing this in the book of Numbers about this star. And this word star, you'll see this appear in your notes. This word star is the word or. And it means an illumination. And it's talking about a heavenly body. In other words, it's not talking about a famous person rising. It's talking about a luminary, something that's bright and clear like the sun. Here's another use of it. It comes from Isaiah chapter 60. Nations will come to your light, your or. And kings to the brightness of your rising, verse 6, they will bring gold and frankincense and will bear good news of the praises of the Lord, written 800 years before Jesus is born. Now, mentally assemble a couple of those prophecies right now. Think about what this is saying. Kings will leave their realm and will travel across country 
hundreds of miles to go and worship another king. Let's put this in context. Can you imagine today Vladimir Putin leaving Russia and traveling perhaps all the way down to India to lay himself at the feet of another ruler and worshiping? Can you imagine Xi Jinping leaving Beijing and traveling out of his realm to another country and prostrating himself and worshiping another world ruler? I can't begin to assemble in my mind what would drive them to do that except they're truth seekers. And the Bible says the kings would do that. Look at me. Look with me at Psalm 68. Kings will bring gifts to you. Watch. Isaiah 49, 7, kings will see and arise. Princes will also bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has, been, who has chosen you. Now, a moment ago, I said that Daniel believed the God of the prophecies. This is why it's an important distinction. I understand that it's very possible to know the Word of God but not know the God behind the Word. Alistair Begg is a pastor who captured this thought really well. Look at his quote. It is very possible to stay close to the word of the Lord and not be close to the Lord of the word. That's well said, church. That's really well stated. If you don't think that's true, study the New Testament, and you'll see what a problem it was for the scribes and the Pharisees. When they're encountering Jesus, they have truth right in front of them. They know the word of God, but they don't know the God of the word. And they're constantly tripping over the reality of these truths that they read about. Among the greatest prophecies, every student knew intimately well is Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9. Look with me at these two. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. What? What? Like, that's a sign? Are you kidding me? I've never seen a pregnant virgin. The virgin will be with child? We treat this as a Christmas card greeting. We think it's so commonplace. There's nothing common about that. And she's going to call his name God with us, Emmanuel? Or this one from Isaiah 9, for a child will be born to us and a son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders. Uh, scripture already saying he, he's going to rule over the entire world. Daniel's knowledge of these ancient words from God and his influence in the Babylonian kingdom provide this basis of expectation of a future kingly figure. Now, we got to fast forward 600 years to the Christmas story. Fast forward 600 years from Daniel to the events of Matthew chapter 2. 600 years of anticipation. And through the understanding of these ancient writings and this astrological calculations and a willingness to pursue the truth, we read of a moment that took place in the first century. And we discover, because Matthew's a detail writer, of this journey that's been taking place from Babylon all the way to Jerusalem on their way to Bethlehem. I don't know if you've ever calculated how far it is from Babylon to Jerusalem. It's, it's 800 miles one way. 
If you're walking 20 miles a day, and I don't know if you're up for that, but that's going to take you 40 days if you never stop to rest, and that's if you can travel as the crow flies, straight line. Like, who's up for that? That's from Lansing, Michigan to Atlanta, Georgia. Could we just go out the door right now and everybody wanted to start going down 127? Let's just start walking. How long before your shoes wear out? How long before you need provisions? They had to plan for this for a long time in advance. And they're going through some pretty wild terrain and wild country. And they're making a very, very long journey from Babylon to Jerusalem. Who's going to do that? Would you? Based on some ancient writings? Well, you probably would if you knew Jesus was in Atlanta, Georgia, right? Like, I'd be out the door now. I'm sorry, I'd leave you, and I'd be gone. I, I, I knew that. So it's really obvious this adventure had major significance for them. Otherwise, why would you take the risk of that kind of a journey? Well, this is the why. They're driven to find the truth behind the evidence They're not worshiping the star. They want to know what's behind the star. What's going on there? What is the truth of this? So we find in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, they arrive in Jerusalem. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. So born is a really important word. You might want to circle that if you have your Bible open right now because born means they understood he is of royal descent. They're not saying he's going to become king or the one who's named king? Where's the one who's born king? This is a really important distinction because kingly status is his from birth. So this term king that they use very specifically, basileus, you see this Greek word in your notes and it's talking about the one from which power emanates. That's what they're calling Jesus. Where's this one from which power emanates from his throne? This is really consistent with ancient prophecies. Jeremiah 23, 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely. So they say, when they come into Jerusalem, we saw his star from the east. And God promised to draw kings to worship the Messiah. And so they say in verse chapter 2, and we've come to worship him. And there's the word we launched with this morning. What will make you worship? You get to know your team, statistics, players. Get to know everything about them, and man, do we celebrate when things go right. Proskuneo. That's a really important word when they say we've come to worship him. Pros means forward. Proskuneo means prostrate forward, meaning on their face. They're going to put themselves in a prostrate position on the ground to worship this one. And this is huge. Because biblically and extra-biblically, we understand that worship is reserved exclusively for royalty. Royalty doesn't worship other royalty. They acknowledge. They don't worship. But despite really limited knowledge, they're eager to worship Jesus. Now contrast this. Herod has in his own court the experts of the Jewish law and the prophecies. They've got the same writings. They've got the same information. They know all this information. 
but they're not in Bethlehem. See, that tells me that a formal knowledge of Scripture does not in itself always translate to knowing Jesus. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. So picture this setting. Herod's peeking out his window. He's in his palace and he hears the thunder of Persian cavalry roaring into Jerusalem because they don't travel alone. They've got an entourage with them. And he sees these conical hats and he sees these Persian clothing and it's a big group and they've got gifts and they're asking questions about the one who's born king of the Jews. Now, for us, we understand this in our modern world, when heads of state come to visit, governments typically receive them. The same was true in the ancient world. When, when you think of the Persian empire, you're talking about control of the oriental trade routes. You're talking about economy-based control. These are very powerful men. But we're told Herod's troubled. Politically, why? Because Rome fears the Eastern empires. They had become violent enemies. In 50 BC and 35 BC, Rome had been at war with the Persian empires. And now it's not that many years later, and these Persians are coming riding into the capital city, and they're asking about a king, and here finds Herod in the middle of two huge contending empires. And add to that the very core of the Persian empire, at the top of the top, it's composed of these magian who are right next to the king. And they have something remarkable about them at this period of time. They have the authority and the power to be the absolute king makers. They have first choice in the selection of a king. And here they come asking about this newborn king. So when Herod hears about these king makers from the east arriving in his capital city and asking about this newborn king, he's in a panic. And the Bible actually says he's troubled. The word translated in the Greek language is agitated like your washing machine with an agitator that's roiling the water back and forth. That's Herod's gut. He's feeling very, very threatened at this moment and all Jerusalem with him according to the passage because they know nothing's going to tick off Herod more than this. And scaring them, verse 4, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. Question. Why does a king with no particular religious interest ask a religious question? This guy's not been living for God. He's living for himself. Doesn't have an interest in the things of God, yet he wants to know where the Messiah is going to be born. He's asking a religious question, even though he has Rome at his disposal. Herod is nothing if not shrewd. He has access to the libraries of Rome and the intelligence of Rome, but he brings in religious advisors. Catch this. Priests are Sadducees. Scribes are Pharisees. The two don't get along. They're rarely found in the same room together, kind of like Republicans and Democrats. And they're after each other all the time. Herod knows if he brings the two together into the same room and asks this religious question, it's very likely they're not going to conspire against him, and he can guard against being tricked. 
So he asked where the Messiah, the Christ, the Mashiach would be born because they've asked about this newborn king of the Jews. So we've got somebody who may not be living according to God's word, but he's smart enough to know that the one they're asking about, born king of the Jews, they're asking about the Messiah. He can put two and two together. It's the title of the same person. Watch their response. Verse 5, they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. In other words, pay attention, Herod. We may not like you, but you can know the same thing that we know. Read the prophet Micah. Here's what Micah says. It stands uncontested. Verse 6, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And Micah's prophecy, 400 years old, is taken very, very seriously. So check this. Herod is a dedicated follower of Caesar. He's king over this realm because the Roman Senate put him in power. Yet as ungodly and misbehaving as he is, he knows what many people disregard today. When God says something's going to happen, it's going to happen. I hope you believe that. And he sees it happening in his lifetime. And he understands, I can put these pieces together. So they've said, in Bethlehem of Judea, Micah's prophecy is taken very seriously. Would you not think that the scribes and the Pharisees would be rushing out the door to go to Bethlehem? It's only nine miles. It's south of Jerusalem. Why wouldn't they be jumping on a horse and rushing down there? This is fulfilled prophecy. This is what's stunning to me about this story. It's the Gentiles. They come from Persia who are the truth seekers, and they want to worship. Because such people, the Father seeks to be worshipers, those who will worship in spirit and in truth. So we find verse 7, then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. So he's already scheming. He's already planning to kill the baby boys. He just needs the age of the child. And the Magi, they're so brilliant and they're so informed, they know exactly when the star appeared. They know the day that the baby was born. He can calculate from that, verse 8. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. Do you believe him? Apparently they did. Apparently they believed him to the degree that he was so convinced of the ruse with them that he doesn't even send an escort with them. He lets them go by themselves, but he does not anticipate God's intervention. Verse 9, after hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was, which is to the south. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's the exact same thing that was said of the shepherds when they showed up. Keep going. Verse 11. After coming to the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Hang on. Who does that? Does 
Vladimir Putin pop in your mind, traveling to another world to worship at the feet of another world leader? With Xi Jinping, with the President of the United States? This is what we're talking about. World rulers who are on their face to the ground, worshiping a, a, a baby. Keep going. They opening, they then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. After 600 years of anticipation, 800 miles of traveling through wilderness and foreign lands, the Hakem see with their own eyes the child and his mother. And if you look very closely at it, put that back up with you, Jody, on the screen. Put that verse 11 back up there. Their worship, read that. They see the mother and his child, but their worship is for Jesus alone. They're not worshiping Mary. They're not worshiping Joseph. They're worshiping Jesus. And they presented the gifts to him. The princes of Persia in the line of Daniel fall to the ground, proscuneo, and they worship because they have investigated the evidence and they have found the truth behind the evidence and they're demonstrating what true believers have done for millennia when they finally find the truth of God. By the next evening, Herod's patience is exhausted. He's not waiting any longer, but by then the Magi have already set out and left. And because Satan is so intent on killing Jesus, even as a baby, he begins working through Herod, and Herod slaughters the children in Bethlehem, known as the slaughter of the innocents. So God has to take sovereign actions to protect his son. And he sends Mary and Joseph and Jesus into Egypt. They leave the same night, and they run into hiding. What do they use to survive on while they're there? Watch this, verse 15. Matthew 2.15, he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Because a madman by the name of Herod is trying to execute him. And so God sends him into Egypt and prophecy is fulfilled again. There's a passage in John chapter 20 that is very precious to me and I hope precious to you. I told you you're precious to God before you ever walked in the door this morning. Look at what Jesus says about you. John chapter 20, verse 29, blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Did you know that's you? If you're a believer in Jesus, that's you. And while that verse also speaks of you, it also speaks of many who have gone before you, including magi in Persia. I'm pretty confident I'm going to see these guys in heaven one day. They believed and they worshiped. So 600 years before the birth of Jesus, God arranges for a teenager to be taken captive, hauled into Babylon, where he serves under a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, who appoints this young Daniel to rule over the group of the Magian, so that one day, centuries later, when God the Son becomes Jesus the man, these Magian are going to make their way across deserts and navigate their way through the wilderness to find and worship and present valuable gifts which the parents of the child are going to use with them when they're in Egypt to survive on until it's safe for them to go back to Israel. Does your God control world governments? 
Does he lay the groundwork? Does he put systems in place to accomplish his purposes? Absolutely he does, but more importantly than that, answer amen with me if you agree on this. God keeps his promises. That's your God. This stuff is fascinating, not because of the historical detail. I told you it was packed full of information. This stuff is great to you and I because you're seeing God at work. He brings wise men all the way from Persia, not just to fulfill prophecy, but to acknowledge he's the king. He's the king of kings, and kings will bow down before him. So I just have a question for you today. All that to ask you this question. Can you say today with the Magi that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish. Do you believe that? 1 John chapter 5, it says that if you don't, you're actually calling God a liar. 1 John 5.10, it says God gave us his son and proclaimed that his son is Jesus. So if you're going against that, you're actually saying, God, you're lying. You're a liar. And that's not going to sit too well with God. So I'm asking you, do you believe what the Magi believed? I'm asking it for this reason. Because without that belief in Jesus, you will not see eternal life. You don't want to be found denying the very thing that God says is truth. As those who will worship him will worship him in spirit and in truth. It's the very thing we're going to celebrate in communion right now. That God the Son became Jesus the man, lived a humble life so that he could rescue us so that we could be forgiven of our sins. For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given. Let me read to you what we traditionally do here at New Hope. It comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Just a paragraph. And I'm going to invite you to come up and pick up the elements. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What you're about to do is witness. I want to remind you of this every time you take communion until the day I die or God takes me out in some other way. What you are doing is witnessing. You are proclaiming to the person on your right and on your left and before God the Father, I believe. Why would you want to participate in communion if you weren't a believer? You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, meaning that he died for you and that he's coming again. And therefore, this huge warning. Therefore, whoever eats the, bread or the dr- eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread or drink of the cup. I'm going to encourage you to come to the table when you're ready. The worship team is going to play a song, and you're free to sing along with them. There's tables in the front and in the back. Pick up the elements and take them back to your seat, and I will talk you through the rest. But this time right now, 
is for you to examine yourself and come to the table whenever you're ready. If Christ is yours and you're physically able to stand with me, would you do that? What a great song. Christ is ours because of the intricacies of the plans that he laid to rescue us. What a fantastic God. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he held up bread and he said, this bread is going to represent my body, which is broken for you. In that same meal, he held up a cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood and it's shed for you. Father, you're looking at an auditorium and people who are watching online full of individuals who are really grateful and so appreciative for what you've done for us. We just can't thank you enough and find words to express it, but we praise you. We praise you with our witness to the person on our right and our left and before you that we believe what you've done for us. Praise you, God, in Jesus' majestic name and all God's people said, amen. Before I let you go, I just want to remind you, if we haven't met yet, I'll be right down here in the front. I'll be glad to connect with you. In the meantime, have a great week, New Hope.